Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The funding for research is going down every year. This is Mayana Zatz, a geneticist based in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Sao Paulo State is responsible for 40% of the publications in Brazil. And very recently, there is a proposal, a bill, that want to reduce the funding. And what do you think will be the effects if this bill did pass? Certainly, we won't have any approval of new projects during probably the next two more years. I'm afraid that many scholarships could be interrupted. We have young scientists that are brilliant and they are going away because they are trying to have better conditions to research. I'm Nick Howe and welcome to Stick to the Science. This is the second in a three-part series Nature is Making about science and politics. Last time, we looked to the past, exploring the intertwined history of science and politics. But in this episode, we're focusing on today. If you are a scientist working right now, what role does politics play in your work, your research, and your life? After all, scientists are human. They're equally part of society and politics. This is Shibita Parasarafi who you might remember from the last episode. She's a researcher of science and policy. Politics shapes science in a whole bunch of ways, right? So it really affects everything in the lab and we don't necessarily think about it. So, for example, governments have funding priorities. And so whether it's the government doing the funding or research councils, charities, universities, companies, there's some sort of interests. And so influence and power dynamic and so you're going to have politics to put it bluntly money makes things messy but it is important in fact funding is so important to the everyday life of a scientist that i'm going to dedicate the best part of this episode to it the fact is that if you want to get on in the world of science today in almost all cases you need funding but with funding comes a lot of well politics Let's get back to Mayana Zatz, the Brazilian geneticist we heard from at the start of this episode. Back on the 13th of August, a bill was introduced by the Brazilian government, which is seeking to reallocate research funds from Sao Paulo State to fill a shortfall in the government's budget that had been caused by the COVID response. According to Mayana, this bill stands to decimate Brazilian research. If we don't have the money, we have to restrict our questions. We won't be able to address all the questions we want. And certainly then the quality of the research won't be the same. Mayana isn't just worried about her paychecks. 
She is worried about how this bill could impact every aspect of her and her colleagues' research, from the quality of their analyses down to the core questions they are even able to ask. And so, if this bill is approved, it would be a big problem, a big loss for our research in São Paulo. So that's something that we are really worried about. Because when I was talking about this concern that we have now, people said, "Well, but if you don't have money for São Paulo, are you going to have more for federal funds?" I said, "Well, just the other way around. São Paulo was the place where we could continue the research." despite the big cutting in funds from federal funds. Political decisions about funding can make or break scientists' careers. Mayana is worried about the security of Brazilian science full stop, but the impact of funding isn't always that extreme. Sometimes it's more a case of influence. Take governments, for example. They'll say we want to fund the Human Genome Project or the Brain Initiative, right? So there's that level of kind of priority setting. Or you just have the structure of, for example, in the United States, the National Institutes of Health has separate institutes, and so they're going to fund in a particular sort of way projects that each of those institutes care about. And sometimes these priorities aren't just about the scientific or academic interests of an institution. Sometimes funding goals are explicitly political. Here's Michael Arad, a funding strategist at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. You know, right now in the European Union, we're waiting for the relaunch of the EU's big set of uh, funding priorities, which will be called Horizon Europe, and will provide something like 94 billion euro of funding over seven years. And I was actually at a presentation last week where someone was previewing all of these new themes and missions, and quite a lot of them are like highly political in nature. So making Europe competitive in technology, say, but there's also areas of of Europe that are underdeveloped, and there's a correlation between the development status of these areas and. The resurgence of certain populist and nationalist political sentiments, and so there's some attention that's paid to how funding from the EU might stimulate some innovation and some business in those areas to try to counter or neutralize some of those political sentiments. This situation is broadly similar to that in the United States as well. Here's Peg Atkinson. She runs a consulting firm that helps scientists and institutions write grants for funding in the U.S. Every federal agency in the United States were created by political entities because these are taxpayer dollars that go into funding this research at that level. So it's had an impact from the earliest days. I mean, even in the '70s, after the National Science Foundation was fairly well established, there started to be rumbles from Congress about. What are we doing here? Where are we spending this money? What is the national interest? So, what happens if your research interests don't align with the specific priorities of the funders? After all, they hold the keys to the bank. What power does a researcher have to ask independent questions?
like it or not, many scientists seem to follow the old adage. If you can't beat them, join them. If you want the money, you have to play the game. In other words, you have to get political. And you can see that in their grants. For quite a while, people did not use the words climate change. The phrase that was often substituted was geochemical cycling or biogeochemical cycling. That you know, it basically speaks to all the things that happen related to climate change without that trigger word getting anyone's attention. And they started doing that because one of our Congress members started digging into any grant that said climate change. So framing can sometimes be a way around studying politically hot issues without showing that that's what you're doing. On the other hand, I've had some people I worked with discuss their potential idea with a program officer and literally get told, that's a great idea, I cannot fund it in the current political climate. The way you word your grants matters, because politics matters, and it doesn't take much for an errant phrase to be amplified into a political headline. I remember when I was at the NSF, there was a big uproar about a particular study that they terminology was shrimps on a treadmill. This is Susanna Gell, a former program officer for the National Science Foundation. And people were very upset because they couldn't see the value of the science that was given that. Why would you want to put shrimp on a treadmill? There was a lot of concern about what the politics or the framing body was seeing as a value for that research based on this assessment of Why would you want to study that? To be clear, the study wasn't just about shrimps on a treadmill. It was about their responses to water quality, which can be important for things like aquaculture, farming fish. But nonetheless, it was used by Republican Senator Tom Coburn to point to wasteful government spending. This sort of thing can have a real impact on research as well. Scientists can become worried about how the research is perceived. This is in no small part why consultants like PEG exist. I will ask people to shift language in the abstract so that they do not become targets later or so that the program officers don't have to ask them later. Like I try to help my clients become a little bit more savvy about what is the political landscape in which they're asking for grant funding. Scientists and funders have been playing this game for a long time. And to some extent, it makes sense. Often taxpayers are the ones funding research, And so the argument is made that their elective representatives should stand up for the priorities of the electorate when divvying up those funds. And sometimes funding politics has nothing to do with biased institutions. It is just a competition between scientists. And scientists can play dirty too. It would be naive to think that the best funded labs are always the ones which do the quote-unquote best research. Sometimes the most well-funded labs are simply the ones that know how to write the best grants. The ones who know how to play politics. But there are times when no amount of creative grant writing and savvy competitiveness can help. Situations in which avenues of research are just plain shut down. Closed off by politics and power and beyond the reach of even the most widely of scientists. More on that, coming up. So it had the classic sort of chilling effect where they were reluctant to fund any sort of research. They decided that they would shut the science down.
Back in 1996, a piece of legislation was added to the US spending bill as it went through Congress. It became known as the Dickey Amendment. And the amendment said that the money that was allocated to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, it said that they can't use that money to advocate for gun control. This is legal scholar Alan Rostron, who used to work for a gun control advocacy. You could interpret that narrowly as meaning you can't fund research to write articles that are basically political propaganda or political advocacy. You can't have funded articles that are specifically saying we should enact this piece of legislation. It's almost like lobbying on behalf of a particular piece of legislation. That would be the narrow interpretation of it, but it is somewhat ambiguous about where exactly it would cross the line into advocating for gun control. From the CDC's perspective, though, it was quite clear what this meant. This was a shot across the bow. This is Mark Rosenberg. He was director of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, which oversaw gun violence research when the Dickey Amendment was introduced. They also took away all the money that we were using to do the gun violence prevention research. And this sent a clear message to the community that this is not a good area to do research in. It's not a good area to base your scientific career in because there won't be any government funding for it. This is a bit different from saying we don't think your area of study is a priority. The implication, as far as researchers were concerned, is that the research is only a priority if it concludes what we want it to. In fact, according to Mark, the National Rifle Association, the NRA, who had lobbied for the amendment, were quite explicit about this. It was a very direct threat because they said, if you do gun violence prevention research, whether you do it at the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control, or whether you give grants to academic researchers to do it, we can make your life miserable we will write a congressional letter of inquiry and we will say in the letter that you are promoting and advocating gun control, basically that you're lobbying for gun control. Well, at CDC, we never lobbied. That was against the law. And so they knew that the letter would be baseless, but it could take weeks or months to respond. And if you're an academic... It could take weeks or months to answer those charges. The NRA kept a sustained pressure on Congress, meaning that, as of 1996, research into gun violence funded by the CDC was, well, just gone. This was later extended to the National Institutes of Health too. And whilst the amendment didn't technically ban research, the agency steered clear over worries about backlash. Even when the Obama administration effectively told the CDC to not regard the Dickey Amendment as a ban of research in 2012. You know, you're you're somebody who works for the CDC or the NIH and you're in charge of allocating this money. You might err on the side of caution of not wanting to get in trouble with really powerful forces like people in Congress or interest groups like the NRA. You don't want to offend them and then have there be a backlash and then suddenly they're, you know, they're cutting funding and that sort of thing. This uneasy standoff continued until 2018, when several horrific shooting incidents compelled Congress to finally clarify the Dickey Amendment. Although they didn't get rid of it, they did say, 
the CDC has the authority to carry out research on the causes of gun violence. So a year after they made that change, Congress did allocate $25 million for the CDC and the NIH. And it was the first time in you know, more than 20 years that there had been any funding through these institutions for research on gun violence. So it remains to be seen if that will become a regular thing, if Congress will continue to give money or increase it in the future. But at least for that year, they did allocate $25 million. So that was seen as a pretty significant step forward on this. Power and politics permeate the professional life of a scientist. Even before you get into the lab, politics is shaping the game, and it has been for decades. But as influential as all of that is, let's put it aside for a moment. Imagine yourself in the lab. You have an idea, you want to ask a question, and you have the funds to do so. It's just you and the science, pure and simple, objective and empirical. Finally, the politics stops, right? Scientists aren't often that great at looking at the political problems because they like to see themselves as above such things. In fact, science is actually of society. It reflects our perspectives, our identities, our values, our biases, our assumptions. I've talked a lot about politics and power at a large scale. Active interference by institutions, deliberate attempts to influence and tailor science to meet a particular agenda, and how science can come second to political motivations. But it isn't just institutions that can have agendas. Scientists can too, and they're often much less visible. In fact, sometimes people don't even know they have them. Here's Alice Bell a researcher of science policy. Scientists like to construct an identity of themselves, which I think is often very positive and helps them do scientific work as standing outside of what they might dub a political realm. I think it's a, it's a useful ideal. I think it can get damaging when people kid themselves into thinking that they've done it when they haven't. And one thing you see a lot of, a lot of controversies coming up is when people say things like, oh, we're scientists, we don't see race. And people go, no, you're being massively racist because you're not seeing racism or you're not seeing sexism that is already embedded in your working cultures. The ways in which political issues in society are translated into science has become a really hot-button topic especially in recent years. And as the extent of structural inequity in society becomes more visible, it is inevitable that people start to turn that lens to science. Here's Shabita again. Why is it that we tend to answer questions, for example, using genetics and molecular biology techniques, for example, right? Well, that has to do with the trends in particular fields, and it has to do with the kinds of questions that get asked by people who are leaders in that field, and the leaders in the field are sort of setting the terrain for for what are the important questions and what are the important issues. The direction of research is influenced by powerful people, but not all people have access to power. Many studies demonstrate that on many levels societies exhibit systemic inequity. And in science, the result of this is that the people leading the way are by and large a pretty homogenous group, old white dudes. And that can influence the output of research. Take technology, for example. 
there is this assumption that technology is morally neutral, or often people go beyond that and say that technology by and large is good, it's beneficial. And the problem with that is that because society, because power, because politics shapes the technology, then technology actually reflects the society and the power and the politics. And because we know societies are structurally unequal, they have biases embedded in them, then it's not surprising that we see lots of technologies that reflect those biases and reflect those inequalities. An example that I often give is the spirometer. So the spirometer is used to measure lung function. And when it was built, it was built with the assumption that black people were weaker. And so the actually embedded in the technology is race correction software. So you flip a switch and it sort of corrects for, you know, if you're non-white. And the assumption is that, you know, as I said, non-white people have weaker lungs. And not only is that incorrect, it's still in use today. Inequity like this is borne out all over science. For example, a 2011 study showed that black researchers were 10% less likely to receive funding from the US National Institutes of Health than their white counterparts. Even after controlling for educational background, publication record, country of origin, etc. A later study suggested this might be in part due to the topics that black researchers chose to research. In essence, the type of questions that black researchers wanted to ask were not as valued by the predominantly white decision makers. And similar trends can be seen for other researchers of colour. The same can be said for attainment. According to the UK Higher Education Statistics Agency, while 3.3% of the UK population is black, only around 1.9% of academic staff are black. And when you look at more senior roles, many more white people fill those roles, while no black people do. Whatever the reason, this variation exists across the world, and it's been widely documented that this impacts research. Most clinical trial participants are white. Most study animals tend to be male. These may not be deliberate discrimination, often they're pragmatic decisions made out of convenience, but they serve as a reflection of those carrying out the research. And a bias sample biases the experiment. There may be a tendency for scientists to see themselves in a professional capacity as separate from mainstream society to see their reasoning immune to systemic problems, to regard their analyses as apolitical. After all, science is about objective empiricism, and society, and the inequity, politics and power that comes with it, is anything but. But what if, by separating science from society, researchers are excluding key variables? What if they are, in fact, not protecting themselves or science after all? If we can think about that more carefully, and also as scientists be a little bit more reflective about it, then we can actually start to think about the systems that shape these kinds of decisions, and then do a better job, I think, of actually addressing the things that most of us do want to address, these kinds of biases and structural inequalities. But if we assume that they're not there, then we tend to locate the politics in the individual or the bias in the individual. But by and large, the folks that might be producing technologies that we find problematic or saying things that we see as problematic, they're actually part of systems and we don't understand that enough. 
This episode was produced by me, Nick Howe, with editing from Noah Baker and Benjamin Thompson. It featured contributions from many people, including Myona Zatz, Shabita Parasarafi, Michael Arad, Peg Atkisson, Susanna Gall, Alan Rostrin, Mark Rosenberg, and Alice Bell. Thank you for listening, and see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.